For generations, the glamour of world travel has been epitomized by the French Riviera. The dreamy coastal towns, trendy beaches, and that pristine sunlight continue to draw artists, sun worshippers, celebrities, and celebrity seekers to the Mediterranean coast of France. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and I've got some good news. The charms of the Riviera are accessible to all of us, not just the rich and famous. Today, we're getting an insider's peek into the French Riviera from a tour guide friend of mine who lives and works in Nice. Pascal Rucker knows the Riviera intimately, and she'll give us a whiff of the wonders of the region the French call the Côte d'Azur. We have testimony of Matisse. He said, Every morning, when I realized I would open my eyes and see this light, I knew I would always come back. The French Riviera is indeed a sensory experience, and it's on today's itinerary. That and your calls are coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. One of the places that titillates travelers the world over is the south coast of France, the region we call the Riviera. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn why this part of the Mediterranean continues to captivate the imagination as it has for generations of travelers. Artists and celebrities, the nouveau riche and aristocrats, film buffs, and fans of Sunning in the Buff are all part of the scene that likes to be seen along the Côte d'Azur. We'll check out the modern art, gain some fascinating cultural insights, and embrace the Riviera good life with a little help from tour guide Pascal Rucker. She lives in Nice and will get us up close and personal with the pleasures of the Riviera. But first, let's take a couple of your calls at 877-333-RICK. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've got some callers on the line, and right now let's go to Michael in Philadelphia. Michael, thanks for calling. Hi, thanks. I've got a trip. Uh, I'm in the planning stages, and I was hoping you could help me out. I'm ending up with a Monday in Belgium, and knowing that a lot of things, uh, museums and whatnot, are closed on Mondays, I was wondering uh, which city, Brussels Mm. or Bruges, you would recommend. Wow. Well, you're ahead of most travelers because you're actually here in the United States thinking about what museums are open on what days on your trip way down the road. And that's very smart because all over Europe, uh, cities seem to choose one day to close their museums. And it is so maddening to be in Venice on Tuesday or Paris on uh, Tuesday or Brussels on Monday or whatever day they choose to close their museums and have only one day and you wanted to see that great Michelangelo or whatever and it happens to be the day you're closed. I think you're in bad shape on Monday in Brussels and in Bruges. Those are the two most important cities to see in Belgium. And most of the great art sites are closed in both of those cities. That's okay. You just need to kind of um, dance around that a little bit. How many days do you have for Belgium altogether, Michael? Uh, Three. Three days. Okay. Well, remember, there's. uh, if I had three days in Belgium, I would have two days in Bruges and one day in Brussels. Every hour there's a train zipping from Brussels to to Bruges. Make Bruges your cute little uh, medieval home base town, and then you need to study your guidebook, and any good guidebook will say which museums are open and which ones are closed on certain days. Now, I'm looking at my chapter on Bruges here in my guidebook, and, uh, you know, the the bell tower would be open every day. So there's something you could do. The historic square is open every day. The wonderful chocolate tours are are open every day. The the best beer in Belgium, the Strafe Hendrik Brewery Tour, is open every day. But there's some beautiful art in Bruges. Bruges was an economic superpower back in the days when the... uh, well, the, the Northern Renaissance there, and they had a lot of money there for a lot of art. So you want to see the Michelangelo? That's in the Church of Our Lady, closed on Monday. You want to see the great Memling uh, paintings, the Flemish primitives? That's in the Plague Hospital, closed on Monday. So you would want to just organize your sites to do the closed on Monday stuff the day before. And I would say on Monday, either use that for your connection day over to Brussels or make a point to see things that are open anytime. Um, it would just be really bad tour guiding on your part if you were kicking around shopping and going to the Strafe Hendrick Brewery Tour on Sunday, and then on Monday, you could have done those things, but you decided to go to the museums, and they were all closed. You could have flip-flopped it, and that was just a little heads up, and you would have had no frustrations because of the Monday. In Brussels, you know, the the big thing in Brussels to see, Michael, is the European Parliament, and that's um, any day, of the, any work day of the week. So Monday's not a problem there. And that's a, a new site. They actually welcome guests into the European Parliament, 
And um, that's quite an exciting development in Europe, and, and you'll learn a lot about uh, this free trade zone with 400 million people and a bigger GDP than the United States right now. But if you're going there to see the Comic Strip Museum or the great uh, Bruegel paintings at the Royal Museum of Fine Arts, those will be closed on Monday. Does that help at all? It does. It does. Michael, how many days do you have for your whole trip there in the Low Countries? We have 10 days, 10 days on the ground. 10 days on the ground for the Netherlands and Belgium. Correct. That's great. And um, you would have the same concerns in Amsterdam. I think you'd want to look at um, which days the museums are open and so on. Right. We're, uh, we're actually flying over overnight on a Saturday, so we'll arrive on Sunday. And That's great. The, uh, the first Monday we were going out to the, uh, the area along the coast where the, the bulbs and the gardens. Okay. So you're there to see the flowers? Yes. Boy. That's, and what time do you reckon are the good times for flowers? Well, everything I read sort of said the uh, the second half of April, which yeah. was uh, how we chose the dates for our trip. That's that's good thinking, and I'll tell you, even if you're not that into flowers, to get out there during you know prime time to see the the bulbs and all the tulips and all the other flowers, it's just incredible. Kuchenhof is the great garden out there, and it's just an hour south of Amsterdam, so that's quite easy to check out. Right, and that's open on Monday, right? That's open every day during the flower time. But if you go there outside of that, you know, it's just a great example. A lot of people go out there, you know, just missed it by two weeks, and, and it's it's really nothing. Although there is a flower market at right by Schiphol Airport and uh, in Alsmeer, I think it's called. And, boy, it's the biggest building in the world, they say, and it is filled with flowers. And they have literal trains going through that place filled with flowers, and you visit the auction halls, and uh, you see this unique way that they auction the flowers off, and that is thriving any day of the week, and all the actions early in the morning. So that's actually that's a handy. If you're flying home from Schiphol, you can actually go out and see the flower auction in this huge flower building on your way to the airport, and it's a fun sort of finale for your Low Countries experience. Good luck with your trip, Michael. Okay, well, thank you very much. We got Rob in Prince George, B.C., British Columbia. Hi, Rob, are you there? Yes, I am. Prince nice George. You, Thank you. Is Prince George like that's on the um, inland passage to Alaska, isn't it? Um, that's Prince Rupert. We're on. We're in the middle of the province. You're in the uh, middle of nowhere. We are. What's on your mind, uh, Rob, for your travels? Okay, um, we're going to bring our two kids with us. Um, some people have said we're crazy. A two-year-old and an eight-year-old. Um, we're going to fly into Frankfurt. Yeah, I'd say you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I've done the same thing. People told me I'm crazy. So you got a two-year-old and an eight-year-old. What are you going to do? Fly into Frankfurt, but we're going to travel to Bacharach, and then from there towards Bern, and then cut across to Provence, and f- end up in Paris, and then fly out of Paris. And I guess we want to know if we should combine train and car travel, or stay away from trains altogether. We want to balance our value and um, right. reduce the hassles. Well, let's think about this. You got a family of four. Remember when you got a two-year-old kid? I think you got to kind of forget about packing light. I learned that anything my wife figured was worth bringing was worth bringing. And the first time I met her at the airport uh, with our to do our first family trip with little kids, man, I was blown away by how much gear we had. But as it turned out, it was all necessary. Uh, a crib for the baby and a stroller. And um, the crib was really nice because he could set it up in any hotel room. And for years, when we had our family of four with a little baby in a crib, you just get a triple room and, and the little baby stows away answered my second and third question. That's good. I mean, just get triples, Rob. Okay. And until you can fake it with with a family of four and a triple for ages, and the way the dollar is these days, and I suppose the, what do you call it, the loon, your dollar is doing a little better than ours relative to the euro these days, but still, you got to watch your, your budget there. Great. Well, that's good information. Yeah, so that, that, that crib was great, but that means no more pack and light. Now, mm-hmm. I'm still not convinced that you should do the whole thing by car because that's an open jaws trip, and you would pay quite a substantial fee to pick up a car in Frankfurt and drop it in Paris. Okay. Because you can do that, and I've done that a lot, and it's worth a couple hundred bucks to pick up a car in one country and drop it in another to avoid the long trip back. But you still want to consider that. What you could also do, which might make sense, how long is your trip altogether? Uh, two and a half weeks. You could very reasonably have a car for a week in Germany and then take a long train ride down to Provence and pick up the car there, a second car for a week, and drop it at Paris. You're you're not incurring a big uh, financial hit if you pick up a car and drop it at any of a 100 different Hertz or Avis offices in Germany 
or in France. That's almost free. What you really find the uh, this economy is picking up in one country and, in, and dropping it in another, you see. Also, two weeks with a car costs just double what one week in a car costs. Okay. So there's no... It's sort of counterintuitive, but it's not cheaper to get two weeks in a row. You can get a week here and a week there, and then take the whole family on the train, or you could fly. Now, I think you might want to consider, uh, just for fun, I, I would really say with a family before you want a car, but you got such a sprawling trip in its open jaws, I would fly into Frankfurt, pick up a car at the airport for, for a week, okay. and then drop it at the airport, and then fly from there to Nice, Frankfurt to Nice, one way for the family. I don't know offhand, but I bet it is no more expensive to fly from Frankfurt to Nice these days than it would be to take the train. So okay. a rule for me is before I ever buy a long surface ticket in, in, in my travels, these days with airline industries deregulated, I drop by a travel agency locally over there and I ask them what's the best rate for just a, a one-way ticket. You could uh, do that on the web before you left home. It might be a little more comforting for you to arrange that from here. Being mindful of the fact that there are a lot of discount airlines that are a secret to travel agents or not available to travel agents and you'd want to uh, search the web for that. In my Europe Through the Back Door book, I have a special chapter on discount airlines. Right. And at our website at ricksteves.com, there's a uh, conversation going on in our graffiti wall about everybody's experience with these super cheap airlines. And again, I don't know offhand, but I know that there are some of the discount airlines that use hubs around Frankfurt. They might not be the Frankfurt airport. They might be one of the second-rate airports that are cheaper for them to operate out of near Frankfurt. But that would work for you. And then you might be able to fly for 50 bucks down to Nice. Point is, then you get to Nice, you pick up your car there or wherever you flew in Provence, but I think Nice would be a good one. It's got a great little airport. And then you can drive and enjoy with your family the Riviera in Provence and uh, get on the auto route up to Paris. Drop your car when you arrive in Paris. You don't want a car in Paris. Finish your trip with three days of that finale in Paris and fly home from there. Uh, that sounds great. I had one one last question for you, Rick. Sure. Um, I really wanted to hit the Cinque Terre on my way down. Do you right. think that's a separate trip? The Cinque Terre is how I pronounce it. I'm not sure what's exactly right. You're sort of doing it French. I think you're probably right. <laughs> the Cinque Terre, the Five Lands, that's uh, the wonderful little Italian version of the French Riviera. And these right. are very rugged towns, and uh, I just love them. And you know what I would do with your trip, Rob? It sounds like you're going to stress it out if you add, if you just got two weeks or so. You got how many days, you said? Yeah, about, well, about 18 days. 18 days. You could do it, but I think you'd be, mm, you don't want a car in the Cinque Terre, and your kids are going to have more fun there when they're a little older. That's I took, what my wife said. I got, <laughs> I got two kids, and one of the best trips Anna and I have ever had was when the kids were older. Our kids were like 10 and 14. We flew into, uh, well, we did Venice and the Cinque Terre, and we had 10 days, and it was just five days in an apartment in Venice. And, you know, there's no traffic. It's great. The kids can't get run over. They could drown, but they can't get run over, okay? So you just can't keep an eye on that. But the kids had so much fun running around Venice. It was so cool. Then we got on the trains that right over the Cinque Terre, and then you're in these little villages in the most rugged part of the Italian Riviera there that have been established as hideouts from the pirates a thousand years ago. And our kids were just in a wonderland there. And it was great for mom and dad, and it was great for the kids. But your kids are too young now to really enjoy uh, that destination, and it would stress out your plan. I like what we uh, brainstormed there a few minutes ago. Okay, great. Good information. Thanks, Rick. Let us know how it goes. Thanks, Rob. I will. Bye. Bye. That's Bridget Bardot. She put the Riviera on the map back in the 1950s and 60s. Nice is nice, and that's where we're heading next as we learn about the allure of the Côte d'Azur with Pascal Rucker, a tour guide in the French Riviera. You're traveling with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Soy Robert Wright, un americano viviendo en Argentina, y yo viajo con Rick Steves. That's Spanish for, I'm Robert Wright, an American that lives in Argentina, and I travel with Rick Steves. Soy Robert Wright, un americano que vive en Argentina, y viajo con Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and I want to say bonjour, because right now we're going to the French Riviera, and I've got with me on the line a friend and fellow tour guide, Pascal Rucker. Pascal lives in Nice on the Riviera, and she works almost every day taking groups and individuals around uh, her part of France, and she's going to talk to us today about her beautiful corner of that uh, fascinating country. Hi, Pascal. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very good. Thank you. How are things on the Riviera? Things uh, are beautiful on the Riviera. Pascal, it's confusing to a lot of Americans the, the term. You see on a map Côte d'Azur and you see Riviera. Is that the same thing? <laughs> yes, it is the same thing. It's just a word of translation. In the 19th century, a man came to the Riviera in actually in 1887, and his name was Stéphane Yejard. He was a poet and a writer, and he admired the blue of our sky and the blue of our sea, and he called it the Côte d'Azur, and write a novel about it. Côte d'Azur simply means blue coast. And it's the blue coast, beautiful blue sea with the blue sky, and that attracted a lot of tourists. And, and uh, the Riviera really got on the tourist map back in the 19th century as a sunny destination for people who lived in the rainy north. Isn't that true? Yes, it's very true. Uh, specifically, the English were coming... Uh, they were followed afterwards by the Russians and then by the, Be by the Belgians. It's really these three kinds of people that were coming, and they were all aristocrats. They came to the Riviera to run away from their dreadful winters and their, their rain and their gray skies, and they needed some light. And we have inc incredible winters here. You can walk sometimes at midday with just a little shirt on. It's not... It's not something we make up. It's absolutely true. So and the, they, the first tourists actually came then in the off-season. It, it was a way to escape the winters. Yes, they came in the winter to be here and to enjoy the pleasures of life and to, to be close to the beauty of nature because we have an incredible um, sea front line and we have the mountains just behind. And it's just, it's just the palette of colors at night are beautiful with the sun goes down. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And in Nice, where, where you live, you've got this famous promenade des Anglais, the uh, promenade of the English, arcing right along the coast. Yeah, it's really named after them. That was done in 1822, as the English requested to stroll on the pass, and it was at the time just a little pass for, you know, a horse or a dog, and it was dusty. And one man who was called actually Mr. Way, he really had the name for it because he was called W-A-Y, very strange, And he decided to raise funds to pave a marble front in, for the, in front of the sea. And if people lit up their imagination now, I would like you all that are listening to imagine these beautiful ladies dressed up in lace and satin, walking with umbrellas because everybody was afraid of too much sunshine. And uh, the men with their stiff mustache, their tail jacket and their monocles having conversations and just strolling for the pleasure of it. That's what they come to do. So when you live in Nice, you're surrounded by these um, relics or icons of the grand tour, um, tourism from the 19th century. You've got this promenade for English aristocrats, and you've got, I believe, the biggest Russian church outside of Russia, don't you? Yes. There is an incredible Russian church in Nice. Uh, it says to be the, the most beautiful one outside of Russia. And it was made by Alexandra Maria Feodorovna. She was the widow wife of uh, Nikolai uh, I. And she was um, suffering from, you know, kind of a depression. And the doctors told her that she needed sunshine. And she brought the whole court of Russia with her. Now, these people needed a place to pray. They started up to make a small, small church in the center of town, which is still existing but not visited anymore. It proved to be too small, as suddenly, in the mid-19th century, we had about 400 families here wanting to pray somewhere. They decided to build a big Russian church that was uh, finally inaugurated in 1912, just a few years before the revolution broke up. 
Wow, and these were the people who would have been assassinated in the revolution because they were the Romanov family and all of their cronies. Yes, it's well, they, they were just, they were not escaping, unfortunately for them. But that history uh, and the revolutionary huh. were angry people, you know, because <laughs> they had put up with too much difficulty. So they, we know they were praying in that church right before that finally they, they had to go back to their country. And one year later, they Bam. disappeared. No, yeah. more, no more Russians on the, the Riviera. Hey, uh, the elite tourism continues today, and we have this jet set scene that enjoys the Riviera. Uh, Saint-Tropez is one of the, the major stops for the jet set, at least historically. I mean, movie stars. Who made? Who was the movie star that made Saint-Tropez so famous? Oh, it's very famous, Brigitte Bardot. She's okay. now over 70 years old, but she's still a very beautiful woman. And uh, it's it's fascinating story. She was a starlet, you know. She just was strolling on the beach of Cannes, a starlet, a very beautiful blonde, a very witty, um, quite uh, feminine. And she attracted the eye of a, a filmmaker whose name is Roger Vadim. Roger Vadim had good taste. Uh, he later, after her, he married Jane Fonda. I mean, he was he had good taste, that man. And he fell in love dramatically with her, and he married her, um, and he created for her, that was in the, in the mid-50s, you see, and then he created a movie for her that actually launched her like the best French actress of the time. Well, not the best one, but maybe one of the most flamboyant feminine one, an emblem of sensuality. And uh, together, because he was from Saint-Tropez, Roger Vadim, they had a crowd of people around them. They were entertainers, and they launched Saint-Tropez into the movie star um, welcome place. After the film festival, the tradition was that the film festival takes place in May. They would go and just drive their car to Saint-Tropez to relax and have fun. And And it was just a coincidence that Brigitte Bardot's husband was from Saint-Tropez, that Saint-Tropez became the the center of all of this? Yes, well, I suppose it it brought things together easily because Cannes is not far from Saint-Tropez. I suppose that if he had been from Normandy in a lost place, the, the whole jet set would not have gone there. Saint-Tropez <laughs> fitted, you know, because it's absolutely beautiful. It's like a, a screen box for, for, for uh, playing. And, and then by the time they came, the big hotel started to implant themselves and the disco bars and, and everybody go to the Cinequier. In, in Saint-Tropez, there is a red uh, bar. Everything is red in there, the tables, the chairs, the tent. And it's an incredible place, the Seneca, it's a very big cafe, and they used to come, and you could see all the movie stars of the time there, Alain but Delon, now that was back in, that was back in the, in the glory days of that, in the 50s and 60s, right? Yes, Today, yes. has Saint-Tropez been overrun by uh, just um, low-end tourists and, and cruise mm. boats, or, or is it, does it still have the elegance of the Brigitte Bardot heyday? Well, I don't know if I, I can say the elegance of Brigitte Bardot, to not contradict you, but I think the, the, what's the thing to say about these times of the 60s is more the care freedom and the pleasure of life, the enjoyment and, and the craziness, because they were crazy. They would drive their cars fast and ride on motorbikes and have late nights. I think Saint-Tropez has changed, yes, a little bit. It's very sad to say. Um, the, 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 the scene, maybe at nighttime you still have those people riding fast and those beautiful women. But um, the jet sets, yeah, they still come a little bit. Roger Moore will be seen, uh, all the big, some American actor that finished the movie festival will be seen there. But it's not the flamboyant French that used to go until 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry to say, it's just the truth. I think it has changed a little bit. Has the center moved over to Cap Ferrat? Because I know Paul Allen has a home on Cap Ferrat, just sort of in the shadow of a Rothschild villa. Well, it's it's a very beautiful spot, and uh, we can say that this is visited by certain people, but the elite that goes to Cap Ferrat doesn't want to be seen. It's just the opposite of Saint-Tropez. When they go to Cap Ferrat, they hide in their villas surrounded by big parks, and all they want is privacy and ah. not the journalist. It's just the opposite. So you go to Saint-Tropez to show to be, off. Absolutely, to ah, be seen, okay. and you go to Saint-Jean-Cap Ferrat to hide, if I can say, in the beauty of nature, but not to be seen. Now, Cannes is very famous on the Riviera, but it's famous basically for the film festival. I find it fairly dull if I'm not into shopping. Uh, What do people see in Cannes? Well, they see a very strange uh, festival hall (laughs) that surprised everybody when I take them on a tour because it's a big building and it, it looks like a convention center. And everybody finds it strange. 
that's one thing they see. But the, the, the natural beauty of the bay is there with the background mountains of the Estorel. Um, the, 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 the seafront is just absolutely beautiful with all these grand hotels. You know, you have the Carlton Hotel that was inaugurated in 1907. Um, well, the, si- the sister city of Caen is Beverly Hills, right? Absolutely. So that says a lot. Now, let's talk about those beaches. I'm talking, by the way, with Pascal Rucker, who's a friend and uh, fellow tour guide. She is uh, living in Nice, and she almost every day takes groups and individuals around her neck of the French woods, checking out the highlights of the Riviera. We're talking about the jet set uh, haunts and the, the great beaches and resorts. And when people are on the beaches, like in Cannes, there's sort of an etiquette for the beaches. In front of the hotels, do you actually have to pay for a piece of beach? Uh, Pascal, how does that work? Oh, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, in Cannes, uh, only two beaches are pri- uh, public. All the rest are private. You have to go in and buy a little ticket that gives you uh, a place on a mat. You, you buy um, what they call a matelas and an umbrella. If you don't want an umbrella, you save money because they make you pay for an umbrella as well as a mattress. It doesn't go with it. And then you have, uh, they, they give you an extra ticket if you want to go in and change your clothes and dress up in your sewing costume if you didn't come with it under your clothes. So it's kind of add up, you know, and it's, but it's part of the thing. I mean, you go in Cannes, you walk outside, you pay money. <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's a ritual. You pay to, to get a mattress, you pay for an umbrella, you pay to, for a changing booth, and then you have your piece of the beach to enjoy um, actually hanging out with other people who are happy to pay for a piece of the beach. Yes, but you know what is beautiful is that imagine you are um, a very fancy movie actor and you don't want to be uh, mingling with too many different people from your world. You, you, you go to and you sleep at the Carlton. Well, you can walk off the Carlton Hotel if you are like that and you just go in your bathrobe, white bathrobe that says Carlton on it, and you walk bare feet across to the other side. Okay, so that's not for the common uh, visitor, of course, but... It creates... Um, there's class, classes on the beach, then. Classes and elegances on the there's beach. There's high class, Absolutely. and then there's the, the, the free beaches, which would be filled with the youth hostelers and the mothers and their children and so on. Yes, and the locals. There are two in Cannes, and of course, they are very, very... People are jammed together in those two. You can actually the, look at it, and one beach will be very crowded, and then over a fence, it's just a few more um, aristocratic types. Huh? Yes, uh, I would call them more nouveau rich. I'm not sure I want to say ah, aristocrats. It's, it's the new rich. Okay. So yeah. the nouveau rich, the, the aristocrats would be hiding out in Cap Ferrat in their private villas without so much public. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Now, for Americans, it's quite interesting that you go to the beach and you're surrounded by topless sunbathers. Um, what's the history of toplessness on the French Riviera and, and what are the trends these days? Okay, the toplessness started again in Saint-Tropez. You have really to understand that Saint-Tropez was the emblem of permissiveness, emblem of freedom, um, saying yes to femininity, to joy of life, including um, sea, sex, and sun. That was Saint-Tropez's motto for a while huh, in the 60s. Oh. We say, in America, I think we say sea, surf, and sun, but you've, uh, you've uh, well, traded out surf. Okay, so that was the way. And uh, together with that... Uh, came uh, to idealize the, the, the holiday, uh, the body, the cult of the body, was the idea to um, enjoy more sun and take off your clothes. And it came along like that in a very simple way. Those were the hippies here also. Huh? It was the same time. And there was this current of freedom. And uh, there was one place in Saint-Tropez, in Pamplona Beach, where it was okay. Um, it was very strange because it began and, and the the police was told to look after the people who are not doing right and taking all of their clothes off. And then in the late 60s, the town hall got uh, an agreement to say, okay, on that particular beach, if people want to be with no clothes on, they can do it. Well, and we're it talking was, completely naked, not just topless. Yes. And then uh, after that was done, in the 70s, uh, they started to uh, say whatever you, wherever you want. And all over the Riviera, it grew to be that way. Topless is okay. So topless is okay. I'm just trying to warn my American listeners because for a lot of people this is exciting and for a lot of people it's pretty stressful. Uh, you know, in our country, uh, we've been known to put uh, robes on our statues if they're if the marble is actually showing anything uh, uh, embarrassing. So we're a little bit different that way. What, are the, what is the French attitude about that when you hear about this in America? 
I think we love. I'm <laughs> sorry to say. <laughs> yes, I think we are laughing about it. So today, topless on the beach in France is nobody looks, nobody, nobody bothers. It's it's not a big um, scandal. No, it's thing. no big deal. But now the thing is going reverse way. I mean, times are changing. You why, know, is, why is uh, that? Well, I mean, the history and uh, the the society is is always evolving. It, it's not like a fixed stone or something is that uh, doesn't change. It it flows with differences of history and sociology would explain it very well. But I think now we are in a time of um, the culture of the, the freedom years of the 60s have completely gone. Uh, people are worried and we hear about breast cancer. Um, there is the problem with many things like... Uh, so the, uh, it's a health concern that people are uh, wearing their well tops more? Well, it's a health concern, but it's not only that. I think the, the, the sense of freedom and care freedom that was there in the 60s is gradually leaving us a little so bit. So it's more I'm conservatism not. in France then? It, we can't say it's conservative. I would say it's more concerned, like... Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sea, sex, and sun may have been the motto for the Riviera, and it was also the title of a song that Serge Gainsbourg first made popular in France. There's a lot more to enjoy luxuriating along the Côte d'Azur, and we'll get more of an insider's perspective as we continue our conversation with Pascal Rucker, and we'll be taking your call. It's 877-333-RIC or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Look in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com for details about our 15 Seconds of Fame department. That's where we collect your contributions to the program in one of these three ways. Write up a short essay about the place where you live. Or write us a haiku poem inspired by your travels. We'll use our favorite submissions on the air in future editions of the program and award the authors with a $20 gift certificate to the ricksteves.com travel store. Here are some recent haiku poems that we particularly enjoyed, written by listeners like you. Susan Erickson of Bellingham, Washington, wrote this poem about her travels in Japan. The school children laugh when we say konnichiwa, us too, kids again. William J. Jackson from Indianapolis wrote this about his travels to South Africa. The wrong person could drive up and down these roads and never see a thing. And from Oklahoma City, Judy and Daryl Cox and their two young sons, Andy and Philip, wrote this haiku as they were driving away from a seven-week-long camping vacation in California. If I never see another redwood again, I will not suffer. Send us your haiku, your evocative travel sound effects, or a short essay about the place you call home. Go to ricksteves.com for all the details. Eight seven seven three 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 rick As we continue to explore the French Riviera with tour guide Pascal Rucker, she's on the phone from the south of France. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Now we have a, I've got a caller on the line here, and uh, we'd like to go to Atlanta, Georgia, where Maggie is uh, waiting to talk to us. Hello, Maggie. Uh, bonjour. Bonjour, how bonjour, are you? Maggie. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I visited Nice um, just recently last summer, and I was exploring uh, French immersion programs in Nice, in Montpellier, in here. But my question is around, um, I would be coming there to live for three to six months. So I'm looking for advice on what approach I could take uh, to find accommodations, what you'd suggest I do for a living there for the three to six months. And I have been a tourist in the area, but other things I might want to consider since I'll be there for an extended time. Well, it depends on what kind of person you are. You are Maggie, that's right? Yes. Maggie, do I say your name right? Yes. Okay, Maggie, look, it depends on what you want. Um, I would say, uh, as I was experiencing myself traveling in a foreign country for learning a uh, foreign language, I found myself learning better when I was staying in a, with a family. Mm-hmm. 
but you have to really feel good in the family if you're going to stay for an extended time. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is the best way. If you pick a family that doesn't speak a word of English, you're sure to be in survival condition. And I would say that's the best way to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, taking morning classes in the morning in, in a school. Uh, you know, we have many schools in Nice. Um, now, if you think this is too imposing for you to stay three months with a family, because it's quite a bit of time, I would say pick a family and stay 15 days see how you feel and maybe change your family until you find a good one or make a mixed time with um, maybe staying on a campus. You could you could stay on a campus uh, at the University of Nice mm-hmm. and be around students a little bit. Can you actually rent a room on campus, Pascal? I think you can. Uh, if you come at a certain time and you have to, to go to the Internet and uh, check Université de Nice, and uh, Université de Lettres, Lettres University, L-E-T-T-E-R-S, and uh, contact them. I think in summertime they would rent you uh, a room on campus. But you'd have a lot of uh, foreign students as well. And what if, you, what if Maggie wanted to stay in a, in a, with some, uh, some people in a private home? How would she find information about that? Oh, that's very easy. Then she would have to ring up the uh, Tourist Information Board, and ask location, renting, location, saisonnière, season location, or through a real estate agent also. There must be also people that rent their flat for three weeks or a month, you know, um, but that's on summertime, I think. Will you, would you come in summer? Or I would you know? probably arrive uh, in, I would guess, probably August or September and stay in through January or February. Okay, then probably through the tourist office board and uh, they will direct you to tell you what are the people that rent their house for two months or three months and and how to do that. I think this is the best way. Maggie, do you know what town you want to stay in on the Riviera? Um, Well, the three towns I explored were Nice, Montpellier, and Hier, which are all, um, some one is, Montpellier is the the farthest west, but those are the three areas I was exploring. And what was the third town you mentioned? Uh, here, yeah, we we. Yeah, Pascal, what do you know about those towns, Pascal? Where where would you recommend that Maggie I would stay? recommend. I, I to be honest, Madame, I am uh, Maggie. I am a guide on the French Riviera, and that's uh, from Saint-Tropez all the way to uh, Monaco, Menton, which mm-hmm. is after Monaco. So I uh, I have never been to Yer and to, it's very strange to tell you that, but it's the truth. I'm not lying to you. Uh, what I know about this town is that Montpellier has got lots of universities, young people, students, and quality of life there is nice. I have a friend there. It's quite cultural, but I think for an adult, Nice uh, has a lot to offer for you. I'm afraid Yer would be a very small and kind of boring after a while. Uh, maybe not as rich for you to explore. Um, in Nice, we have. Uh, I would I would recommend Nice, but I don't know Montpellier very well. I mean, I've been there once, you know, so it's like I don't know the place. So, but Nice is very is good for you because I think there are many different kind of people, um, much going on in in any season. We have an opera house. We have a big theater. We have museums. There's always something here. Yeah, it's very quiet. I know that. Maggie, do you, Maggie, do you have any other questions about the French Riviera? Um, well, I was going to ask a follow-up in terms of if I were staying there for that extended period of time, what would Pascal recommend for weekend uh, trips? If I was based in Nice, where would she recommend I spend some weekends that would be perhaps um, I enjoy the wine country, I enjoy art? What would she recommend? Oh, that is a marvelous uh, question because I can answer it, and you're going to—I'm going to make your mouth water. <laughs> okay, absolutely no problem, Maggie. You can. Uh, would you be? Do you think you would have a car, or you yes. don't know? Yes, most likely. Or I could rent one for a weekend. Okay, so absolutely no problem. All around the beauty of the Riviera is that we have the coastline. And then we have the, 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 the arrière pays, the background countryside. And there we have villages where painters have spent time and have left us with beautiful art. And you can go to, can you write, Maggie? Yes. Saint Paul, Saint Paul, Saint, like a Saint Paul, P-A-A-U-L, Paul, Saint Paul de Vence. You could go to uh, Gourdon, which is up in the mountains, J-O-U-R-D-O-N. 
You could go to Ez, E-Z-E, which is between Monaco and Saint-Tropez. And those are just three little villages. Now, we have about 15 villages that you could visit and all surrounded by gorgeous natures and beautiful sites. You have art. The painter Matisse uh, left a magnificent chapel with was his last work of art and the completion of a, a life research that is in Vence, V-E-N-C-E. Uh, then you could go to see the Picasso Museum in Antibes. Uh, you can do the coastline, by the way, just using the train as well. It's just wonderful, oh, yeah. you know. Pascal, if Maggie wants to go to the interior, would she find some sort of um, more colorful, rustic lifestyles that you would be less likely to see on the coastline? Absolutely. Uh, this is the pleasure of the, uh, the Riviera, Maggie. You have the authenticity in the backside countryside, and the coastline is the glamour. Huh? So what would you find in the interior? Well, uh, rustic village life, if, as, as the more you move up... People wearing berets, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> the funny image of the American with the Frenchman and the beret and the baguette <laughs> under the arm. That's right. Well, it's what you're looking for. Uh, yes, well, you will see that, Maggie, but of course... We are also in modern times, so you will not have every man wear a beret. The young men don't anymore. But you will have the authenticity. You will see the old men sitting for hours at the cafe with their little wrinkled faces, talk with their hands, play the bocce ball. Uh, you'll have the flavor of the Sunday morning markets in the villages. You'll see people come out of church. If you go in the right season, uh, in, in high in the mountain, you can see some sheep and some goats. Uh, the people will be nice with you in the, in the countryside. They'll talk to you. You'll see a couple of people with beret and, <laughs> and uh, working the, their bread under their arm to give it more taste, of course. Yeah, you will see that. Maggie, I hope that gives you some good ideas. It does. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're welcome, Maggie. Uh, we're talking with Pascal Rucker, who's a tour guide from the French Riviera, and we're learning all about the Côte d'Azur. And we have Catherine on the line from Santa Rosa, California. Hello, Catherine. Hello, hello. Thanks for your call. Uh, do you have a question uh, for Pascal? Um, my daughter and I have uh, visited Villefranche-sur-Mer a few times, and uh, I would love to know uh, how we could go about uh, buying something uh, out in that area. Do you know anything about real estate? <laughs> okay. Hello, Catherine. Um, it's expensive. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, Catherine, I'm a tour guide. I know vaguely about prices of property uh, that will make your hair stand on your head. It's really easy to check that through the tourist information board, through the Internet. Uh, just click with uh, French real estate. You say immobilier is I-M-M-O-B-I-L-I-E-R. And if you if you ask the uh, tourist information board, they must have an internet site, and you just click there. Uh, Pascal, um, do many Americans actually buy homes and and um, live happily uh, in this uh, Mediterranean wonderland? Oh, certainly some do. I mean, I know we have a lot of people that are Americans who live in Saint Paul de Vence, which is a village outside of uh, just outside the coastline and very famous. Uh, we have people in Cap Ferrat, we have Americans in Monaco, in Antibes, in Cannes. Oh, yes, all over the Riviera, they are. Catherine, why, why do you choose uh, Villefranche, Catherine? I, I just love that it's this little pocket of a village. That's a, it's an old fishing village. You know, it's um, very affordable. The restaurants are affordable. The stays are affordable. And I thought maybe if, if we somehow get back a little bit within walking distance of Villefranche, we might be able to find a little two-bedroom or something that would just be oh, juicy. Maggie, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. I thought you wanted a great villa on the Cape. I'm sorry. Uh, so I get back now, and I understand better. Okay, so you would look for a two-bedroom, a, two a simple thing, you know, but a beautiful one, charming and picturesque, in the village of Villefranche or just outside. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's yeah. more, more what well, we're considering, yeah. Yeah, just then it's very, very simple. Honestly, um, I'm sorry to tell you from the information board, but they will give you all the name of the real estate and, and just contact them then. That's that's the easy way of doing it. Catherine, I love that Villefranche also. It's just a perfect, you described it very well, and it's uh, it's actually quite affordable, and it's a very, it's like, what, 20 minutes, Pascal, from Nice? Oh, yes. It's actually by car, 20 minutes, and, and by train, it's only seven minutes from Nice. It's mm -hmm. just wonderful, and the train come and go all the time. 
and it's kept the charms of old days. You're right. Yeah. There's wonderful places on that uh, Villefranche area and some of the best Bouya Bays I've ever had. I think they're famous for their restaurants right along the waterfront, as you probably know, Catherine, from your visit. Le Mer Germain? Yes. Oh, I'm very impressed that you know the place. Yes, it is the place. Very well said. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thanks and good luck with your dream of uh, uh, calling the Riviera home. Thank you so much. Yes. Thanks, Catherine. Pascal, let's talk about perfume, because a lot of people go to the French Riviera, and it's famous for the perfume. How does uh, a tourist uh, connect with the whole uh, perfume culture? Oh, it's very easy to connect with perfume culture, because all you have to do is smell. Huh? We're born with the odorette. So what you do is you hop on a, on a, in your car or on a bus, and you go to grass. And now grass has got um, 35 perfume factories, so this but is a town called Grasse, G-R-A-S-S-E? Yes, that's it. It's in the inland. It's just uh, a little further from Cannes, just above mm-hmm. Cannes, about a 20-minute ride from Cannes, half an hour. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very uh, easy because uh, most uh, perfume factories uh, that want to welcome uh, people for visitors say it in big letters. So you get into the town of Grasse, and it might even seem a little too commercial to people. Uh, so I would like to advise two, two names that I really recommend for people who want a beautiful visit. Go to Molinar, M-O-L-I-N-A-R-D. That's an old-fashioned, and you can have a wonderful visit there. They take you, and they don't uh, insist on selling you products because... Um, it's it's not commercial at all because you have other ones that welcome big buses and there are more. You'll see plenty of tourists there and you'll feel a little lost perhaps. So I really, but Fragonard also the old factory is very beautiful. So Molinar and Fragonard in the town of Grasse. Inside the town in the old town, but now we have something wonderful, very new. We have a train, so people can actually take a train from Nice, hop on the train and go all the way to Grasse, and it takes. Uh, 40 minutes and it's a gorgeous ride. Right now, will you meet an actual nose? I've heard about these noses that are. Tell us about a nose. Okay, a nose is a perfume creator. So he holds the mystery of the creation of the perfume. He, it's, uh, it's something very, very hard to be a nose. We have very few noses in the world. Uh, recently, I read an article that said we only have 200 men that call themselves noses in the world. They go to chemistry school, and then after they specialize in Versailles, uh, we have a school in Versailles and one also in Grasse. For three years, they specialize. And what they do basically, they're very lucky, they only work two hours a day, and they compose perfume. So they mix essences, but please know that to make a perfume, you need... To, they need to work from six to six months to eighteen months, and they sometimes have to mix over one hundred and twenty essences. It's very, very difficult. Yes. Now there's two hundred noses in the world, and how many of them would be in in France? Well, in France, uh, they say we have a hundred and twenty noses. Wow, you got sixty percent of the world's noses in your country. Yes, we How's do. How's that? French people are just like. Perfume is part of life. I mean, even men uh, are, are into perfume, aren't they? Yes, men wear eau de toilette. Talk me into being a, a, a appreciative of perfume. But I want to be honest with you. We cannot put all the French men and the French women in the same basket. It would be a lie, and I won't lie to American people here. So I'm going to tell you the truth. Cosmopolitan people will wear perfume naturally. People that are peasants in the countryside, they don't care. Maybe they will if they go to a marriage, huh, to be honest. Okay? Okay, okay? So we're talking about the cosmopolitan. And my, the young generation, the generation of my father and my grandfather, all these men were wearing perfume. And my uncles, everybody wears perfume in my family. All the men do. Eau de toilette for men, which is less uh, uh, strong, and perfume or eau de toilette for women. Pascal, one of the great attractions of the French Riviera is the modern art. And by modern art, I mean the, uh, it's been a mecca for 20th century artists. What is it about the, uh, the Côte d'Azur that is so appealing to the, the great artists of Europe? I think it's the light. It's just as simple as that and as beautiful as that. Uh, we have testimony of Matisse. He said uh, every morning when I realized I would open my eyes and see this light, 
I knew I would always come back. And that was when he stayed for the first time in Nice in 1916. Uh, now, Picasso, who was Spaniard, he was born in Malaga, said that when he was in Antibes, he felt taken by his roots and he felt like he was at home with the sunshine. Chagall, who's a very joyful man uh, and who uh, said that he felt at peace. Uh, Matisse, again, I return to Matisse. Uh, when we think of Matisse's uh, paper cuts, and if people know his art, they surely remember the nudes of Matisse, these blue women in the decoupage, in the paper cuts. The blue he used, he said, was the blue of the sky. So there are many things combined. It's the light, the blue of the sky, the blue of the sea. The If you came here in the winter, I don't know if anybody that is listening here to this program came to the winter to the Riviera. This is the light of the painter in the winter time. Oh, and, and the painters fell in love with that. And they, the, the, the light is radiating. It's a vibration of colors. And they just were happy with it. And they recognized it. And they based in it. Yeah. Now, when you go to Nice, uh, you've got two great museums there, the Matisse Museum and the Chagall Museum. Chagall Museum, designed by Marc Chagall himself. And then a half hour away, you've got Antibes with the marvelous Picasso Museum. Uh, The museums of the French Riviera are just reason enough to go there. Uh, Even if you're not going to be laying on the beach, you can just immerse yourself in great art inspired by the unique light of the French Riviera. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Pascal, You live in a fascinating part of France, and I want to thank you very much for your insights. Thank you for uh, coming to me for a few minutes, and and I hope everybody will come and, and visit us, and I'll be there, and I'm waiting for you. Winter and summer, the French Riviera is really a very rewarding place to check out. Thanks again, Pascal. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on this and other programs in this series. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.